All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello, dear listener. It's Manoush here in Washington, D.C. I am sitting on the floor of an empty conference room. Why, you may ask? Well, that's because this week, Note to Self is coming to you from a special event called the No Identity Conference. This is a conference about how we go forward protecting your personal information, something we talk about a lot on the show. And guess who kicked off this event? Well, me here in Washington and Ed Snowden in Russia. Ed and I were together, sort of, on stage and in conversation. I just got off the stage where I was talking to him, and we thought you'd like to be some of the first people to hear what Ed has to say about our privacy, our identity, and how we can live better online and off. Take a listen. I want to start out, Ed, with the situation that I think is helping people see just how important their personal information is, and that is the global cyber attacks that have now hit over 200,000 computers in 150 countries. You recently said that we are dealing with the greatest security crisis in history, and that was before the attacks. What went through your mind when you first heard about what had happened? Yeah, so it's hard being right. Uh, in the worst possible ways, right? It's an uncomfortable feeling. There's that sort of natural inclination to be like, ah, why didn't they listen? But at the same time, there's a natural understanding that there's momentum, there's inertia that exists in all of our institutions and all of our policies, and particularly when it comes to how we allocate our budgets, uh, where we put our spending toward. Now, for those of you who haven't heard the news yet, uh, maybe you're not working in, in cybersecurity, lucky for you this weekend, What we're talking about is an extraordinary story. It's never happened before in quite this way. All the media outlets are are following up on it, and it's basically a perfect storm of all of the problems that everyone's been warning about for years. Now, we have the U.S. National Security Agency, which is sort of our, our state surveillance bureau in the United States, that is supposed to be aimed externally towards sort of foreign adversaries, military spies, terrorists. But because of changes in the politics that happened at the point of the Bush White House on September 11th, they started looking inside the country too. This is called mass surveillance. But when we look at what sort of happened here and why this is so impactful, look, the NSA They've done a lot of harm to Americans' rights, to Internet security uh, broadly, but no one pretends that this is their intention, uh, right? Nobody's trying to burn down the NSA. I don't advocate this. Uh, We're not saying these people are villains. What we're saying is that good people often do bad things for what they believe are good reasons. Uh, It's very easy to make mistakes here. And so how did we get to this point where malicious hackers are shutting down hospitals. And since the hospital story broke, it spread. We now have railway stations that have their terminals affected. 
automobile manufacturing plants in France have been shut down. FedEx in the United States has been impacted by this. Uh, And it's actually getting worse rather than better as new variants that are more difficult to combat are being spread around the world. So this is really the central issue. Uh, Microsoft has come out and gone, for the first time, this is fairly unprecedented. Actually, it's totally unprecedented. They fingered the NSA. Journalists, newspapers that are uh, sort of talking about this issue typically use language that provides the NSA a little bit of a fig leaf here and goes, cyber attack tools or digital weapons allegedly stolen from the NSA. And there's one organization in the world that is not a government agency that knows whether or not these tools, in fact, originated with the NSA, and that is Microsoft. Now, Microsoft's president and chief lawyer just made an extraordinary statement last night. I'll read from it uh, very briefly, uh, where he goes, look, these were, in fact, taken from the NSA. They are now being used against customers around the world. And this demonstrates something that we all need to pay attention to, because no matter who's at fault, no matter who's responsible here, we have to fix the problem because it's getting worse. They said this attack provides yet another example of why stockpiling computer vulnerabilities by governments is such a problem. This is happening around the world. This is not just in the United States. This is an emerging pattern in 2017. We've seen vulnerabilities stored by the Central Intelligence Agency, right? These are top secret classified. They're in air gap networks. They're not connected to the Internet. Show up on WikiLeaks. And now this vulnerability that's ransacking the world, stolen from the NSA, is affecting customers no matter their nationality. Repeatedly, exploits in the hands of government have been leaked into the public domain and have caused widespread damage. An equivalent scenario to what we're seeing happening today would be conventional weapons produced and held by the U.S. military being stolen, such as Tomahawk missiles. And this most recent attack represents a completely unintended but disconcerting link between the two most serious forms of cybersecurity threats in the world today, those by nation state actors and those by organized criminal groups. It's hard to think of a circumstance in which the problems are more clear, which begs the question of how do we arrive here? And we're fortunate because just a few months ago, for the first time that I've ever seen publicly, and I I can say this with some authority, having worked at the NSA and the CIA, and of course work now for the public in opposition, that the National Security Agency's deputy director, just retired, Richard Leggett, confirmed for the first time NSA's Cybersecurity spending is 90% dedicated to offensive operations. This is the central problem that we're seeing around the Internet today again and again, but it should not be this way in the United States, in an organization, an agency whose name, the National Security Agency, implies a focus on security rather than attack. But Ed, Ed, Uh, okay, I want to ask you though, right? How do we reframe this conversation? Because we, you know, the people are hearing that, well, I'm sorry, if you want security, privacy has to go just a little bit. It is the price we pay for keeping this country safe. And I just wonder, is this a false trade-off? I've heard you say that it is, but is there a better way to frame the relationship then between privacy and security? It is. So this is one of the most popular talking points that we see coming from those who are kind of apologizing for the harms of these programs and saying, live with them. It's saying, look, if you want to have any of your rights, the first and most important thing that you ever need is security. 
But they're not really talking about security. They're talking about surveillance. And when we actually evaluate the usefulness of these programs, for example, those that were revealed in 2013, excuse me, I'm trying to, uh, to find the indication here. Here we go. Uh, in June of 2013, when I came forward and these things were first revealed, the president of the United States said exactly this. He said, look, we've drawn the right balance between your rights and our need to surveil, between security and privacy. But later in the year, facing continued criticism and more stories that came out showing that these programs weren't really effective, he appointed two, this is to his credit, two independent commissions to review what's actually going on with these programs. They had total access to classified information, include people who are no friend to civil liberties, such as former deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Michael Morell, and went, do these programs work? Are they legal? Should they continue? And the reports of those committees said, in fact, this kind of mass surveillance, they had never identified a single instance involving a threat in the United States in which these kind of things, the telephony mass surveillance program, had made a concrete difference in the outcome of terrorism investigation. Moreover, they had never found a place where it had even contributed to an investigation in a concrete and unique sense. There were, of course, edge cases where maybe it was... Uh, interesting or helpful uh, in some way, but these were small and they said they could have been achieved through traditional means that we already had that were less intrusive. Now, when we talk about this reframing and why it matters, the central point that people need to understand is this has never been a conversation uh, about privacy versus security because privacy and security improve together, right? They're actually tied to each other. When one is reduced, the other is reduced surveillance and privacy are the contradictory factors. When surveillance increases, privacy decreases. And unfortunately, this actually means when surveillance increases, security typically decreases. Now, that might not seem obvious at first glance, but when you think about how surveillance actually functions, it becomes quite clear, particularly in the computer security context. Surveillance operates by observing, witnessing, and exploiting vulnerabilities, right? Whether that's you walking out on the street where you can be observed rather than within the four walls of your home, that's exploiting a property, right, where you are insecure and using that for the interests of whoever sort of runs this surveillance thing. Now, when we think about the internet and internet surveillance, this is particularly problematic because the way internet surveillance works is the same way communications that are being transmitted unencrypted or electronically naked, unprotected as they cross the internet, can be observed. They can be captured, whether it's by the criminal sitting next to you in Starbucks, who's on your local wireless network, sniffing communications that are going over the air, whether it's telecommunications providers who are seeing it as it crosses the switching points and then heads on to Facebook, whether it's Facebook itself that's mining these and then selling your data to advertising, advertisers making it available however they want, or whether it's these governments themselves, which maybe you trust the national security agency, maybe you think they're you know, the champion of truth, justice, and light in the world, that's okay. Recognize that the Russian NSA is doing the same thing, the Chinese NSA is doing the same thing, the French, the German, you know, the Brazilian. This is happening around the world, and in a borderless network, right, we need to be focused on security, on defensive measures more then we're focused on these offensive benefits of surveillance. Because when you cut those corners, when you focus exclusively beyond, on being able to watch people, on being able to attack adversaries, on being able to spy 
on people of interest, what you're doing is you're keeping those doors open that allow your adversaries to attack you in the same way. And this is precisely what Microsoft alleges the NSA did that led to the ransomware attacks of this weekend. They knew about this flaw, the National Security Agency, in U.S. software, U.S. infrastructure, hospitals around the world, these auto plants and so on and so forth. But they did not report it to Microsoft until after the NSA learned that that flaw had been stolen by some outside group, right? We still don't know the identity of the people who actually did this. But the problem is, had the NSA not waited until our enemies already had this exploit to tell Microsoft and then Microsoft could begin the patch cycle, but instead told Microsoft when the NSA first learned of this critical vulnerability, we would have had years to prepare hospital networks for this attack rather than a month or two, which is what we actually ended up with. Okay, in a minute. Yep, still sitting on the floor here. You're going to hear more from me and Ed Snowden at the No Identity Conference in Washington, D.C. Don't disappear. We're back. It's Manoush Samarodi with more of our special episode of Note to Self, recorded live in Washington, D.C. at the No Identity Conference. Here's the rest of my conversation with former government employee turned privacy whistleblower Ed Snowden. Okay, so I want to drill down. We've mentioned security. We've mentioned privacy. But let's talk about this word identity. You know, this conference is called No Identity. What in your mind constitutes identity. I mean, Facebook wants us to merge our identities into one single account. What does it kind of mean to you? Yeah, so there are a lot of ways to look at this. The way that I think matters the most for computer-based networks is we're talking about an identifier, right? But we don't want to use sort of the word identity to define what it is. So we want to start talking about names, right? Some kind of authentication token, some kind of credential that can be used to assert a need or a desire to participate in something, right? Whether it's wanting to connect to a network so you can share your voice, if this is a social network, or wanting to be able to engage in trade, whether it's buying or selling, or transferring value, right? Whether this is in a financial institution or or something else online for those who are interested in like the blockchain style things. These are a cryptographic identifier, right? Some kind of key that says I can spend this money or I possess this sort of uh, cryptocurrency or whatever, and I want to send it to this person or the other. It's that critical point of going, this is mine or this is me. Identity is about the self, about distinguishing this actor from that actor from different perspectives. I mean, I would say, though, that that's a very sort of American take on the self and this idea that the individual is paramount. And in some of the other countries that you've mentioned, I'm thinking of China, the self is not paramount. It is about community. It is about cohesion. How do we in this room start to think more globally about what identity is when we are so different, think so differently about what identity means to our society? Well, there are two ways of looking at this. One is you want to be open-minded and you want to look at other perspectives of the world. But there's another side which goes, do we want to emulate China? 
Perhaps they have more people, right? And perhaps when we do a poll about what's popular in the world, the Chinese model would be reflected as more popular than the American model simply because they've got more people, right? But even if that's not the case, even if France, Germany, uh, you know, whoever you look up to says this is the right model, we don't want to focus on what people want for themselves. We want to focus on what some institution wants for them, what some authority wants for them. Does that make it right? And this is where I would argue that something being popular is not the same as something being moral, which is the same as something being lawful, not being the same as something being moral. These are distinct concepts here. And while, yes, there's a lot to think about here, most of the problems that we face today in the identity space are derived from what I would argue are are structural flaws. Uh, We're looking at top-down models where very few institutions are sort of saying your identity is your token that we've given you and every other sort of group must rely on our decisions, right? Whether this is your driver's license, whether this is your passport, they say all of your other identifiers, right? Like your bank account and whatnot must be seeded from this initial token that we've granted. But is that really the case? And does it have to be that way? So what technologies are you looking like speed forward into the future? Where do you think the most promise lies? Technology is part of the problem right now, but can it, where can it be part of the solution as well? Yeah. So the idea is that right now businesses are having to invest tremendous amounts of resources into things that don't really align with their core mission, right? Whether we're talking about know your customer laws, uh, other kinds of financial regulations, that say, look, you guys have to do this. You have no choice. You're going to engage in sort of our process. We're going to deputize you to do our work. And it's simply accepted that that's the way it must be. But this is one jurisdiction in one place that has these things. And then we start to see it spread to other jurisdictions. The EU has their own set of rules. And then we've got similar ones again in these other part of the world that are less familiar, places like China where they're actually starting to sort of score citizens and assign them things the same way that we do credit ratings. And this is where we need to start doing heavy thinking about the fact that, well, when we look at the history of governments throughout all of civilization, they've tended to fail unpredictably and with very harsh results again and again and again, even the most well-intentioned of them. The least well-intentioned of them (laughs) tend to do even more poorly. But what does this mean? This means we need to focus on enabling people to do what they actually need to be able to do, while also providing some capability for those who are in a position of power, of influence, of privilege in these platforms, right? Whether we're talking about trade, whether we're talking about communication, to move things in the right direction. If it's a private platform, this can just simply be in line with their corporate values, right? Whatever they think their mission is, whatever they think is the best thing for the world as they see it, because they are a private entity, right? When we're talking about public institutions, then we'll start to talk about uh, laws and regulations and statutes and what the public will here is. But we also need to think, I think, centrally about getting back to that mission of enabling people to interact across distance to achieve goals that are net positive for the world. Sharing somebody's voice uh, is a great example of this. Now, we've seen ways that this can go wrong. Things like ISIS videos and whatnot being splashed over Facebook. 
but we've also seen the wrong responses that are provided to them. Facebook and many other organizations around the world are now saying, well, we are going to become the censorship police and start making decisions about what can and cannot be said. Now, look, there is no debate about the fact that we don't want beheading videos and jihadist propaganda spread around social networks. But Are social networks the ones that should be policing this? Are they the ones that are best placed to decide this? Probably not. This is why we have courts. This is why we have law enforcement. This is why we have intelligence agencies. They are the ones who are actually invested with the capabilities by the people, by the public, to make decisions that are fundamentally violations of rights, right? If you're censoring someone, even if it's jihadist propaganda, That is impinging on their freedom of speech, but it is justified, right, uh, based on what's going on. Courts and police are the ones who traditionally make these most difficult of decisions because they have processes, they have accountability uh, to which they can be held uh, and a very high standard of process. When a private company does this, even if Facebook starts in the best way, in the most careful way, when we look at that 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, it's going to look very different. Okay, so last question. On that very human note, as we sort of have last words when everybody here in this room is going to go out, they're going to talk, they're going to tell each other what they're working on. And I guess I'm just sort of wondering, what do you think the implications are for each of us psychologically if we don't figure out how to present our identity, protect our privacy, and deal with our personal information going forward? Yeah, this is a great question because it gets into that central talking point that we've heard again and again that actually underlies a lot of the know your customer stuff, which is, look, nobody should worry about this stuff. If you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. But privacy isn't about something to hide. Privacy is about something to protect. It's about who you are, who you can be. It's about the ability to make a mistake without having it follow you for the rest of your life. If we create a world of structured uh, sort of authoritarian identity where you're given this sort of magic piece of paper or chip in your driver's license or your credit card or whatever, and that's solid, crystallized, the one identity that's everywhere and everything for all things, you have that kind of thing that people in high school used to threaten where, you know, this will go down on your permanent record. You truly will have a permanent record that will follow you. No matter what you do, a child that is born will not have the same benefits that you did of making a mistake, of doing something embarrassing, of saying something stupid that they were then able to move on from. We will create a permanent class of people who are stigmatized either because they made a mistake because they made a bad choice, whether that's a financial choice or whatever. Maybe they even committed a crime, right? This person went to jail. They were convicted of theft or whatever. But society typically likes to believe in things like, okay, you've paid off your debt to society. Now you can begin again. But when we have people that can be tracked on the basis of the records, and there's no way to live outside of this context, this chain of records, what we have become is a quantified spider web of all of our worst decisions. And, you know, this may be the most wonderful thing in the world for for people who work in the insurance industry or something like that. It's a very negative thing for a free and open society because now everybody in the world will think twice before they even open their mouth. 
because they're wondering what that's going to look like in the database. That's a very, very dark future, ladies and gentlemen. It's certainly not inevitable. One doesn't even need to say we're on the road to it right now. But we do hear a lot of conversations. We do hear a lot of rhetoric that's starting to make people hear the edges of that. And if you hear that conversation starting, I think we need to just take a minute, reflect on that and go, okay, that's something that we can do. But is it something that we should do? Thanks, Ed. Ed Snowden. Thank you very much. Okay, so that was me and Ed Snowden chit-chatting away in Washington, D.C. Have to say, it was kind of surreal when we were doing the tech check before the actual event. And just like, hey, Ed. He's like, oh, hey, Manoush. And so apparently he knows the show. So that means he's been listening to you listeners in addition to you listening to him, which is kind of awesome. We've got behind-the-scenes photos of the event at notetoselfradio.org. Or if you subscribe to the newsletter, they'll be in your inbox. And... Life is interesting. So many things we need to think about. Sign up for our newsletter. And meanwhile, many thanks to the folks at One World Identity for having me and senior producer Kat Aaron at their event here. And the rest of the Note to Self team back in New York is Jen Poyant, Megan Cunane, and Joe Plord. Kat and I miss them already. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Anoush Samarodi.